What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with John Talty. John is a senior sports editor at AL.com and the author of the book, The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban, How Alabama's Coach Became the Greatest Ever. So we sat down and discussed the qualities that make Nick Saban the best college football coach in history, why he focuses on the process instead of the results, and John tells me the best stories from Nick Saban's 15 years at Alabama. I really hope you enjoyed this podcast as I had a great time recording with John. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7. So it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15% and get free shipping. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer, and the 8sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot, but now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I've ever before. The pod is the only sleep technology that can maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. Even better, 8sleep recently launched the next generation of the pod. The new Pod 3 enables more accurate sleep and health tracking with double the amount of sensors, delivering you the best sleep experience on earth. The pod isn't magic, but it definitely feels like it. Go to 8sleep.com Joe to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. 8sleep currently ships within the US, Canada, the UK, and select countries in the EU. Next up is MoonPay, the leader in Web3 infrastructure. Trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide, MoonPay is a portal to Web3, a place where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. As blockchain technology continues to integrate with sports all across the world, teams and leagues are looking for simple solutions to unlock their digital markets. That's where MoonPay can help. Whether you are front office staff, a business executive, or a marketer, and you're looking to mint collectibles on the blockchain to create an NFT marketplace for your brand, MoonPay's technology can bring your digital strategies to life. So if you want to learn more, go to moonpay.com slash Joe. That's moonpay.com slash Joe. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. All right, everyone. I'm joined today by John Talty. Hope I pronounced that right. He wrote a book recently called The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban, How Alabama's Coach Became the Greatest Ever. So I invited John on today because I want to talk more about this. John, how are you? Doing great. You nailed the last name. You're, you're killing it so far. I didn't think much of it beforehand, to be honest, that it was going to be difficult. And then as I was reading it, I was like, I really hope I said that right, because I could see maybe a different one, but I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah, All right. So let's start with motivation to write this book. Everyone knows who Nick Saban is, potentially 
most likely the greatest college football coach of all time, one of the greatest coaches in all of sports history, just based on kind of what he's accomplished from a winning perspective. But specifically looking at it from like a leadership perspective, what made you write this book and say, I need to dig deeper? Yeah, I think it really started for me, you know, I've covered Alabama and Nick Saban for a while now, close to a decade. And, you know, covering recruits, players, coaches, all these different people involved with the operation. And over and over again, they would tell me that Nick Saban runs this like a business. It's what they would say over and over again. And even, you know, you would even see rival organizations try to use that against them, that like Alabama is just a business over there. Like we have fun over here. And so it's something that's been a part of Alabama for a long time. And people would tell me Nick Saban could be a Fortune 500 CEO, all these different things. And I wanted to test that out. I wanted to find out are there actual things that are translatable from what he does to everyday business, to everyday leaders, all these people outside of football? Or is it just some people who maybe haven't really been around businesses and are saying, oh, it feels like this is a business. And so that was a big inspiration for me. And I think within that, one of the biggest things that I wanted to set out to do was to not only show you how Nick Saban has done what he's done, how he's been able to build this incredible organization, but to show you the why, to show you the motivations behind these different things so that, you know, no matter what you're doing in your life, you might be like, oh, I get why this guy does that. I could probably do that in my daily life, too, and maybe be a little bit more efficient or a little bit more successful. Yeah, I love that, because I think that's exactly correct, that some people see it as a big benefit, right, of running it like a business. They say everything's kind of structured. He cares about X, Y, and Z. We all know what's expected of us, et cetera. And then some people will say that as a negative, right, because I think that we've seen certainly in sports today across college football, but other industries also, fun has become like kind of that centerpiece. People want to have fun. They are brought in or attracted to places where the coaches are willing to let you be yourself or have fun. And I think Saban, more people would align him with like the Bill Belichick style of leadership, right? Where people know what's expected. If you get out of line, he'll correct you, those kind of things. How do you think he fits in with like where football is today or like kind of where I think football is heading, right? Where we see those coaches, maybe, especially in the NFL, right? Bill Belichick's probably a good example. Tom Brady leaves, maybe they don't have as much success initially. And now everyone's looking at Sean McVay or all these other coaches who are younger, who like to have fun, and maybe his system is seen as more outdated. Do you think that's changing college football or do you think Saban's basically positioned, he could say the exact same for the next decade and have just as much success? Well, I've asked some players about that. And one of the answers I got back over and over again was that winning is fun, right? And so they're kind of like, you know, yeah, maybe we're not like listening to cool music during practices, but like, it's really cool to end the year when you're the national champion. And so I think that as long as he's able to have the level of success that he's had for now 15 plus years at Alabama, I think he can continue to do a similar style because, you know, at the end of the day, there'll be a payoff, you know, and I've seen, you know, at other places, you know, you can have, you can be structured, you can be really hard and all these different things. But if you're going five and seven, then the guys aren't buying in. And that's when people start to tune you out. But I do think Saban has evolved over the years. I write about this in the book where what he was doing, you know, maybe in his first couple head coaching jobs and what he's doing now in 2022 at Alabama, there's been an evolution there. And I think he's realized that, to your point, coaching a kid in 2022 has to be different than 1989. You know, they, they need different things. They're motivated by different things. And so there haven't been radical changes. You know, he's not walking around hugging and kissing guys all day. You know, maybe some other coaches would. But I think he's shown a softer side of himself. I think he has allowed himself to have more joy with those guys and show how much he cares about them more. That They understand it isn't purely about winning. There is more to it. He does care about us a lot. 
And that's why you see even guys, when they leave, they love to come back. They love to talk about him. They love to hype up Alabama. I think it's because of the respect they have for him that it's not purely transactional. Okay, one question before we get into more serious stuff. Does he actually eat two oatmeal cream pies every day for breakfast? He eats the same thing for lunch every single day too. Salad with some turkey slices, a little bit of tomato. Yeah, I mean, the guy is very regimented. You know, his thing is like, he's going to have one to two cups of coffee in the morning. I'll have some oatmeal cream pies. He's going to watch the weather channel with his wife. That's how he starts his day. Then he goes to the office, you know, and that's, he does it every single day. I mean, maybe there's been one day in his life he missed it. I don't know. But from everything I've heard, he does that every single day. Do you think that has anything to do with, like, we've heard of certainly people in like Silicon Valley. I know Mark Zuckerberg was famous for a long time. Steve Jobs, all these guys, they wear the same clothes, right? And the whole idea behind it was that you use less mental energy by making less decisions and you can focus your mental energy on bigger decisions and things that actually matter and move the needle. Is that part of it or is this just a routine? I think it is. And it's something that I actually write about in the book where I say to your exact point, I was like, just if you start eating the same thing for lunch every day, that's not going to make you Nick Saban, right? Like this is kind of a, like a functionality of his desire for efficiency, but simply, you know, we're eating the same thing every day. Or I think back to the, the Theranos story in which Elizabeth Holmes is so obsessed with Steve Jobs. She starts wearing the same thing every single day. And like, that doesn't make you Steve Jobs. That's just kind of like an extension of who he is. And so I do think that is exactly what it is, though. It's like if I can save like 30 seconds or a minute of not having to think about, oh, do I want this for lunch or that? Like you just know you're getting the same thing every day. And, you know, to me and you, that might be a little boring, but I think he just he likes that structure. He likes that regimen. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And he's obviously been successful. So people can point to it and say, hey, that's one of those things. But who knows if it really is, right? One thing I want to talk about is recruiting because college football is different from the NFL and the idea that you actually have to go out and recruit a lot of these players. Sometimes actually coaches prefer the professional ranks because of that, where you don't have to spend time and, and resources to go do those things. Saban has obviously been a master recruiter. Part of that, of course, is because they win a lot now and it's much easier to recruit if you're the, you know, the winner and you can point to guys in the NFL or championships and those things. But he obviously had to get there also. Talk me through just kind of his recruiting process, how he convinces people to come, what that looks like, how much time he spends on those activities. Yeah, he works on it every single day. And it's because he realizes that in college football, recruiting is absolutely critical for his organization's ability to have success. And so there's a scene in the book that I write about his very first meeting at Alabama. He you know, just took the job, had a press conference. He's like, all right, I want every single person in this building to be in this room at 3 p.m. And so that's the coaches, that's the secretaries, the custodians, everybody in the building is like, I want them there. And so he starts out his speech. He says, everything we do is about recruiting, everything we do. And so if a recruit walks in here and the floor is dirty, that's going to reflect poorly on us. And people are going to think we're not a well-run organization. And if a recruit's mom calls in and you're rude to her on the phone, they're going to think poorly of us and they're not going to want to come here. And so from the very beginning, his first day there, he established this is the number one thing that is of critical importance to our organization. And not only that, but he wanted to make sure that whether you're the offensive coordinator or if you're the custodian, that you are having buy-in, that you realize that what you were doing was having an impact on those different things. And so he works on it every single day. Guys tell me stories when he goes on vacation, they'll send him a hundred tapes of recruits to watch, you know, and he'll, he'll watch a couple every night before he goes to bed. He sends in his notes, you know, he's, and it's, I think he loves the competition of it. 
But I also think, again, it's that discipline of knowing this is what it takes. And one of the ways that I put it in the book was that when you know when you wake up every morning, no matter what, you have to do something, there's no excuses. He knows every single day I'm going to have to do something with recruiting. So it doesn't matter if a meeting runs long or if I'm not feeling great or I'd rather just not do it. Nope, doing it every day, no matter what, because this is the number one thing if our organization is going to be successful. And so he has embraced that more than any college coach I've ever seen. And especially the fact that he is now 70 years old, he's won seven national championships. The fact that he still is doing it that way, I think, is a big reason why He's been able to not only have success, but maintain success. It reminds me of Bill Walsh. I don't know if you ever read his book, The Score Takes Care of Itself, but good book. And and one of the things that kind of is a common occurrence about that book is just his attention to detail, right? And you talk about calling the janitors in and and saying, hey, if the floor is not clean, it reflects poorly on us. He was the same way. He had the receptionist, right? He gave them a script that basically that's all they could read. He didn't want them to deviate from the script. He wanted the players to wear the same stuff. He wanted everyone to look the same, the, the exact same stuff, right? Is that a common thing that you've seen throughout Saban's career? Like his attention to detail is far and above what else you've seen? Absolutely. And one of the one of the great little details that somebody told me, and this is just such a tiny little thing, but I loved it, was that one of his coaches told me that he was the best guy he had ever seen at just literally drawing X's and O's. Like just how he drew them were so perfect. Like and he told me he was like his O's looked like he had a stencil drawing them. And it was just this tiny little detail, but it was like he perfected it. It was a little detail he had to perfect because this guy was telling me like, you, know, you got some of these coaches, man, they're sloppy. Their handwriting's awful. You don't, you can't really read what they're saying. It slows things down. Like he was on perfection, even drawing X's and O's. And I just thought that was just a great little example of just to be the best. It sometimes takes focusing on those tiny, minute little details and making sure that they're right so that you can do the really big stuff right as well. Yeah, I love that. What does the recruiting pitch look like? Is it literally just because I saw, uh, was it in Alabama, D.C.? I think it was someone the other day commented and said, hey, look, you know, we want to have many national championships. You want to get to the NFL like this is the place to come. Is that what he says or is it like more complicated than that? So one of his big recruiting pitches is that basically we're only going to promise you and offer you an opportunity. And so he'll tell these kids I'm not promising you a starting job. I'm not promising you're going to be the star. I'm not promising you a jersey number. All these different things that you see happen in recruiting. What I will promise you is that if you work hard, you look at our track record, you'll have a chance to play in the NFL. You'll have a chance to graduate. You'll have a chance to win a national championship, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not giving that to you on day one before you even get here because so much of what he does is built on a meritocracy. You know, if he's making promises to guys before they even get there, that that's going to, you know, erode that competitive culture that he has. And so a famous example in Alabama is that with Julio Jones, who we now know to have been an incredible wide receiver. At the time, he was a five-star recruit, the number one guy in Alabama. Saban had to have him. It was his first year at Alabama. And what he told him was that, I would love to win with you, but I will win without you. And I'm not giving you anything. Like You can come here and you can work. You'll have a shot, but like, I'm not giving it to you right now. And Julio loved it. I think it really appeals to those super competitive people like, oh, you're not going to give me anything? Like, I'm going to go there and make you give me this thing. And so yeah. what it does, it's almost self-selecting of uber competitive people. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's almost working for you in an extent, because in a world where everyone is promising people things, especially with NIL and everything now, which I'd love to get into, but like everyone's being promised things, whether it's the amount of money, whether to your point, it's jersey numbers, it's starting jobs, it's opportunities, those things. Like you're being promised all these things. 
And then when one guy comes in, who's got the best resume of them all and says, look, I'm not promising you shit. Like you got to go earn it. I'll give you an opportunity, but I am going to win without you. That probably changes your whole mindset. You're like, okay. It's like the thing that you, you want that you can't have. You're like, all right, I kind of want to go play for that guy now. And he's probably like the only coach that can really do that with a select others, maybe based on his resume. Absolutely. And there was, uh, I have this in the book that they did a survey, I think it was for their 2019 recruiting class where they, you know, surveyed all these guys and they all obviously have a million different options. They can, if you're able to go to Alabama, you can go pretty much anywhere. So they asked them like, why did you pick Alabama over all the different options that you have? And 25% of them explicitly said it was the fact that you guys promised us nothing. Like that was such a motivating factor to us that like, I wanted to get there and prove to you that you had to give it to me. And so it showed to your point that like, it attracts this, you know, it's like a beacon almost to attracting these different people. And then they see what other people go through. And so you, know, you can, if you're a quarterback now, you'd be like, oh yeah, I might not play year one, but you can look at Mac Jones. Yeah. He didn't play for three years and then he got his chance and he was a first round pick. And so they can point guys back to those stories too, of like, you know, you'll be able to, whether you're starting right away or not, like you'll have a chance to be really good if you buy in across the whole way. Does Nick Saban ever get burnt out? So it's something that I, it was a a key question that I wanted to find out. And I asked multiple people who know him well. And I said, because one of the interesting things that they do with the players is that they have these like GPS trackers on their like shoulder pads, whatever. And so it it allows them to kind of mark whether they're like, oh, this guy's kind of burnt out. We've been overworking him. He's coming off an injury, whatever it might be. And so I asked a couple of people like, do you think Nick Saban ever thinks about that with his staff? Like, do you think he ever thinks about burnout? And one person was just like, I don't think Nick Saban knows what burnout is, man. Like, that's like, that's not a word in his vocabulary. But one person did tell me who knows him pretty well was said that what it is about Nick Saban is that what he is doing is truly what he loves the most. Like, it actually gives him energy rather than suck it out. And so that's not to say he's not tired. I mean, he, or it doesn't have moments where it's not fun, but he's basically said like, you know, if you put him in a different job in which he wasn't working with highly motivated people and wasn't doing something he really liked, he would burn out just like any of us. It's just that he happened to find essentially his life calling and it like it's something that just he just wants to do every day. Yeah, I love that. It makes sense too, right? It goes back to like the old cliche of just if you enjoy it, you won't feel like you're working. And I ask that because sometimes it feels or you know, seems like he is one hundred percent twenty four seven, which doesn't necessarily surprise me. But the other thing I want to talk about is I remember reading a while, this may have been even years ago at this point, Lewis Riddick, who's on ESPN and formerly in the NFL, both a player and an executive, mentioned one time about kind of what makes the great coaches great. And the one thing I specifically remember is he was comparing Belichick and Saban. And the thing he mentioned about Saban was, and Belichick was that one of the qualities they had that overlapped was they both could do every job on the staff at the same level, if not better than the current person who's doing it, right? And the example he used was that if the quarterback's coach is out or if the defensive line coach is out or if the offensive line coach is out or if the kicking coach is out for a week or two weeks or three weeks, each coach could assume that position as the primary coach and do as good of a job, if not better than a job of the person they've hired. And he wasn't saying it as the person they hired isn't good. It was more of like their aptitude to coach each position and their knowledge of the game is that good. Is that a problem, right? Like, because I almost think of that as like, if you think you're better at it than the people that are doing it, right? The whole, the whole saying is like hire for your weaknesses or find people that are better at things than you and hire for them. It seems like they're the highest it can get right at that level. And then you're basically finding people that can maybe fill some gaps, but are basically closer equal to you. Did you learn anything about that process? Like how is he with his assistant coaches? Yeah. So there's two things I'll say about that. One, Nick Saban is a former college defensive back, right? And so 
he, he likes to joke now that he is the defensive backs GA, right? But he is very hands-on in that area. And numerous people have told me like the absolute hardest job on that staff is being the defensive backs coach because Saban is just so locked into it. And I think he does know I can do it better than anybody. And I think there was, there was Rick Venturi, who was a longtime NFL defensive coordinator. And he was like, Nick Saban is by far the best defensive backs coach I've ever seen in my entire life. And so he's just an expert there. But with the staff, it, it is tough. And there were some guys who told me some funny stories that like one of the challenges with Saban is that because he is so brilliant at so many of these different things, like, you know, sometimes he would kind of get on you a little bit and, you know, he would kind of say it maybe a little smug or something like that. And you, you would walk away. And this one guy told me, it was just like, what made you so mad was that he was always right. You know, like he would kind of get after you and you want to be like, ah, oh, my boss knows nothing. Like I know it better than him. And then you walk away, you're like, man, he was right. Like he, he, he definitely knew it better than I did. And so that is a little bit of a challenge, but I think that it does bring out the best in people. And I think that's something that, especially at Alabama, people told me over and over again that like Nick Saban is the pace car of that organization. He is driving it at a very fast pace. And what that does is try to make every single person on staff try to meet that level. And so, you know, when they're having their, you know, coaching meetings you know, during the week, like you need to bring your A game because you know he will pick you apart if you don't. And so I think it actually, you know, if you have that kind of mindset and ability to handle that, it brings the best out of you. But there are other guys who kind of crumble under that and they're just not prepared for that level of intensity every day. What uh, has Nick Saban meant to the university in general, right? Like it's easy to look at the wins and the losses and the championships and be like, you know, he's obviously meant a lot, of course. But I remember looking at it a while ago, and I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but basically just the tuition at Alabama, how much it's increased since he's been there. Obviously, the exposure is huge. If you're on national TV, you're winning championships, everyone sees you, they know who Alabama is relative to other schools who may not be doing those things. What has he meant to like the school in general? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, one of the famous examples, I feel like in sports business for a long time was the Flutie effect, right, at Boston College. And then there was the George Mason one. And I think Saban... You know, I don't have the exact numbers across in college to compare, but I would say he probably has as great an effect as any because, I mean, it's led to massive construction at Alabama, expansion. They've had a absolute horde of different people coming from out of state. And when I, I'm from New Jersey originally, when I first got to Alabama, like, I, think I, was, I felt like the only person from New Jersey who'd ever been to Alabama, you know, and then now I'll drive around town and like I'll see New Jersey license plates because kids from New Jersey are now going to the University of Alabama, which they definitely were not when I first got here. And so he's put them on such a national stage that it's been great for recruitment. And of course, you know, out-of-state kids pay a lot more in tuition. So there's been a lot of money. So I just, uh, I just looked it up. I wrote about this like a year or two ago. So I just Googled it real quick and pulled up the article. Doug Flutie, the Flutie effect is what you were referencing earlier. The whole idea was that he threw a Hail Mary in 1984. Boston College was you know, well-known and famous right after that. They saw a 30% jump in applications for the school the following year, right? So the whole idea is that if you have or athletic success, it leads to increased enrollment and, and applications at least, and potentially to your point, out-of-state people who pay more money than in-state people, specifically at a school like Alabama. So since Nick Saban arrived at Alabama, the school, the number of people, the enrollment has increased to 40,000. So it's increased 25,000 students higher than it was when he got there. 60% jump in enrollment compared to the average nationally, which is 10%, right? So Insane. yeah, a considerable amount more than the, than the average. And then to your other point about the out of school versus in school, they've increased their enrollment by 60%, which is what we just talked about. But only 40% of the students are now from Alabama, which was 60% previously. 
So a, a large percentage has now been out of state, which to your point are paying a lot more money. I think, yeah, they pay three times more in annual tuition, $30,000 versus $10,000. Maybe that's changed in the last couple of years, but you know, it's, it's in the neighborhood. So you can actually point to like dollars and cents that he's had impact also outside of just kind of the, the visual or like the mind share of Alabama being good. And it lifts up the city of Tuscaloosa, it lifts up the whole state, really. I, I remember when during the pandemic started, when we thought the football season might get canceled. I want to say that with like no tailgating and no football, like the city of Tuscaloosa, I want to say it was like almost like they thought it might be like a half billion dollar loss. Some, some like absolutely insane number what they thought they were going to lose yeah. in potential impact. And it's just because like, especially in the state of Alabama, like Alabama football drives the bus. And it's, you know, when things are going well, it just leads to more money for everybody. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, when you when you add up like the number of students, I was just looking at the math times the amount of money that they're paying relative to the the delta between out of state versus in state. It's two hundred million dollars a year, and he's getting what like ten to eleven million, depending on the year, whatever it is. So that's pretty good ROI for for, for Alabama as a school, outside of everything else. One of the other things that I want to talk about though is how he goes about like results, because one of the things I think about, and I'm sure many people do, is the process versus the outcome, right? The whole idea that winning or losing isn't necessarily what you have to focus on. It's more of what leads you to that. Bill Belichick's famous for this, just do your job. If everyone does their job, we'll win games, et cetera. Is Nick Saban regarded and does he approach it in kind of a similar manner? Yeah, I think there's definitely some do your job influence on his process. And of course, you know, Saban and Belichick work together at the Browns. And so I think that's influenced some of what he does. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things you notice at Alabama is that you know, there's nothing hanging up on any wall talking about how their goal is to win a national championship. They're not going to talk about it. They're not going to say, we need to be national champions. That's not how they look at it. It's more so, let's work every single day like we are national champions. And then maybe if you do that every single day, you'll be where you need to be in the long run. And it's so much about, you know, one of Saban's things that he talks about all the time is that you either get better or you get worse every single day. There's no maintaining status quo. And so you either woke up that morning to try to be better than you were, or if you didn't, you're going to fall behind. And so he truly is working every single day. Like it is just as important as that big game. You know, there's not the, I see coaches fall into this trap all the time where, you know, it's the big rivalry game, right? You know, and your school is playing the big rival and you're just getting everybody hyped up and you're hitting, you know, we hate these guys and all these different things. You're trying to psych them up and maybe you even win that game, but then you lose the next one because there's a, that letdown. Like Saban's trying to maintain kind of an equilibrium. It's not too high. It's not too low. He doesn't want anything too wild in that regard. And so, I mean, it sounds crazy, but I feel like I have enough testimonies that I know it to be true that like, he is working just as hard in May as he is in December. You know, like he, he just views every single day as critically important. It can't just be one. And if you can truly live your life that way every day, I mean, you're going to achieve great things. I mean, it's very hard to do. Yeah. It's like the videos you see of them, them playing some, you know, D2, D1, AA school and him getting on them if they're not up by 40 or 50 or if they run the wrong player, if there's a penalty or whatever. It's just like this guy obviously cares. He doesn't care who they're playing. He doesn't care what the score is. He just wants to make sure everything's perfect and things are being executed done and done properly, which is probably a big part of his success. What, what has changed in the NIL era, right? Because I think most people would point to it and say, it's great, obviously, for athletes. I think most people assume, right, they have the ability now to earn income. But it, I mean, Saban specifically, it almost like rocks what he has going a little bit, rocks the boat, right? Like he's at the top of the game. They're winning championships. They're recruiting really well. If everything stayed as it was, like you don't really see that faltering. 
they're obviously still doing that now a year or two in, but like, what has changed? Is he comfortable with it? Is he excelling in it? Is he not as comfortable with it? Just talk me through kind of what you've seen there. Yeah, I think he he's he's been publicly frustrated by it. You could it kind of depends on your take on it, whether you think that's purely for selfish motivations, which I think are certainly possible. Or, you know, he tries to sell it as I think this is bad for the game of college football, which some people believe is true. Some people don't. I think the issue he has with it, as other coaches do, is that you the spirit of it, which is guys being able to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness and make money has turned into basically just a way of legally paying guys during the recruiting process to come to your school. And so, you know, Alabama in the first year of NIL, somewhat hampered by the state laws in the state of Alabama, you know, it's just kind of a patchwork across the country of what you're allowed to do. But I think Alabama purposely took a conservative approach because like you said, like things are rolling right now. You know, we don't need to be the ones doing wild and crazy stuff, which we're potentially going to get in a lot of trouble a year or two from now. We've obviously seen other schools take a different strategy, including some in the SEC. Texas A&M is one that Nick Saban has publicly called out that he was upset about. Is that is that real beef? Is that real beef between him and Jimbo oh, yeah. Fisher? Yeah, and but what's interesting about it, and I, you know, I'm a, a big Godfather fan, and so what I compare it to is like Saban. It was the way he talked about it that happened in Birmingham, Alabama. Those Saban's famous comments were that like I viewed it. He kind of was saying like it's not personal; it's just business. Like I'm not saying this as like a personal attack on you. I'm just saying like. This is the reality of the world we live in. And we either need to go down that path or we're going to fall behind. That's how I kind of took his comments. And so it felt it felt very Michael Corleone to me. And then Jimbo's reaction felt very like Sonny Corleone, you know, like very emotional, very over the top. You know, it's like he kind of got baited into doing this wild thing. That press conference is still just absolutely absurd if you go back and watch it. But yeah, so there's some there's definitely some lingering beef there. But the thing that I'll say to kind of tie it together is that. You've seen throughout Saban's time at Alabama, there are things that have publicly frustrated him. And one of the big ones earlier on was the spread, hurry up, no huddle offense stuff. You know, he was having some problems dealing with it on defense. He didn't really like it. And he kind of complained about it. And everybody's like, oh, Saban's whining. And then I think what he does is he'll, he'll give you a year or so of that. And like, oh, you're not going to change the rules? Okay, I'll figure out a way to do it better than literally any of you. And I'm going to crush you with it. And that's, what we've seen over the last five, six years with their offense, it's unbelievable compared to what he was early on. So Saban has shown to me enough of a track record. He'll figure out NIL. I think we're already seeing him start to do that. I think as of right now, they have the number one recruiting class in the country. And so they're getting it figured out. I think he kind of was willing to hold back for a year. And now he's like, okay, you guys aren't going to fix this. You're not going to put any rules. Like, all right, we'll do it that way too. That's fine. Yeah. And it's also like Alabama's not a small school, right? So if you're going to play the game of let's raise donor funds or whatever it is, I'm sure they can do that just as well as anyone else in the country. So that doesn't surprise me at all. One other thing that I want to talk about was Alabama. I don't know if they're famous for this, but it's certainly something I've noticed is assistant coaches come and go, right? Very often there. They have success. And then people, I think to a degree, want to steal them away because they think that They've experienced kind of how the process works. They can take things with them, not necessarily secrets, but they can bring those processes or those ideas to a new organization, whether they're in a head coach or an assistant coach or the trainer, strength and conditioning coach, whatever it is. Two parts of that question, though, is first, let's start with how is Saban so good at plugging new coaches in and not skipping a beat, right? Because I don't know how many offensive coordinators there's been in the past five or 10 years, but it seems like a lot. And it seems like every year the offense is still really, really, really good and no one misses a beat. So like, how does he do that? Yeah, I think there's there's two things that I think are important about that. One, and I, I write, this is a whole chapter in the book, but he's built this analyst army in which 
he hires guys who have been failed coaches elsewhere. He brings them in and they have kind of, you know, this ambiguous analyst role. I mean, we've had Steve Sarkeesian, Butch Jones, all these guys who are big head coaches elsewhere. They make like 35 grand a year and they just get to kind of do whatever Saban wants them to do. But what that really helps is that gives him a year or so to maybe get used to how the operation works. And then if he has an opening here, he's got this guy who maybe was a former head coach who just spent a year in his organization and knows exactly how things have to be. He can just slide him right in. We saw that Sarkeesian, Mike Loxley, who's now the head coach at Maryland, Billy Napier, who's now the head coach of Florida. You know, he was an analyst and then got bumped up. So I think that's one of the big ways is that he has some of these people purposely kind of put on the bench to be able to bump up when needed. The other thing that I think that he does that's really smart is that one, during the recruiting process, he prepares everybody for it. He'll basically say, I'll be here and the process will be here and Alabama will be here. You know, everything else, like, you know, guys are going to have opportunities. They might leave. They might not, you know, like don't come here just because of the offensive coordinator or something like that. And two, within that, he makes them work within his system. And so when he hired Bill O'Brien, a guy who was a year earlier, an NFL head coach, you know, very accomplished guy. When he comes to Alabama, he has to change his terminology to match what Alabama was doing the year before. And in Saban's mind, he says, I'd rather make one guy have to learn new stuff than make 50 or 60 kids have to learn new stuff. And so that, I think, helps when you it puts the onus on that new coach and not all these different kids. And of course, there's going to be a transition period every time. There's going to be some, some bumps along the road. But I think the fact that he has built this really strong system in place and he gets guys to come in knowing, you know, I want you to use all of your skills and abilities, but like, you're going to do it the way we do it here at Alabama. He calls it the Alabama way. Like you're going to do it our way. You're not just going to do whatever you did the last place that you work. So these kids already kind of know what to expect and they don't have as many of those kind of transition pains that other places might have. That's really smart. It's, it's, I'm talking specifically about the idea that a coach would come in and use their terminology versus what they would previously use, right? Because not only in the instance of, of making one person change versus a punch, you obviously keep things consistent and whatnot. But the other idea is that in a lot of instances, to your point, these are coaches that had a rise to the top and have faltered and, and fallen a little bit and are now trying to basically catch themselves. And there's obviously no better place to do that than a program like Alabama. So I'm assuming the analyst role is something that's highly regarded if you're one of those coaches that you want to be able to get into. And then if you get promoted or whatever, but you're willing to do it because of that, right? You're willing to do these things. And you're willing to put up with some of this, if that's how you want to call it, because it's going to give you an opportunity at your next job. But the second part of that question was, why the hell does he always beat assistant coaches, right? Assistant coaches can never beat him when they go to other schools. And the reason I asked that is because in sports tradition, I think people always assume that if you coach with someone, you know their strengths, but you certainly know their weaknesses, right? You know where someone's vulnerable or you know the type of plays they're not good at or the things they can't defend. And that's not necessarily about Saban all the time. It's about players too. It's about the organization in general. But Saban always seems to beat assistant coaches. I think last year or two years ago was the first time he lost to Jimbo or, or I think it was Jimbo, right? Yeah. But do you think there's anything behind that or is it kind of just, he's really good and it's really difficult to beat him? Yeah. I asked somebody about that and I think this is like a famous quote. So I don't think this is a unique quote from this guy, but essentially said like with Saban, it's like, just because everything you know is from me doesn't mean I taught you everything I know. And so I think some of these guys, you know, they try to copy some of these different things that they see that Saban does, but maybe it's not genuine to who they are, or maybe they're not true believers, you know? And I, I think it's not a surprise to me that of all the guys who have come through there, that Kirby Smart has had the most success 
because to me, he feels like the truest of disciples of Saban has ever had. I mean, he's doing pretty much as close of a blueprint of the process and everything in Alabama at Georgia that you could possibly have. And so I think that's part of one of the reasons he's had success. But what somebody told me that I thought was interesting was that sometimes these guys almost get in their heads when they try to play Saban. You know, they're trying to like, they're trying to outthink Saban. And so they start doing stuff that's maybe out of what they normally do. They kind of go away from maybe their strengths and, and things like that. And like this one guy told me, he's like, you're just never going to outthink him. Like you're never going to trick this guy. And so like, but these guys like, oh, I want to beat Saban so bad. I'm going to throw these plays that he's never seen. And we saw that a little bit of Lane Kiffin last year where he almost seemed to like talk himself out of what he normally does. And it didn't work out. And so there's just a lot of guys who I think they try to do a little bit too much. The other factor, let's be real here, is that Saban is an incredible recruiter and he has incredible players. And so these other guys, unless you start recruiting to his level, it's always going to be challenging to knock him off. Yeah, I think that's a fair point that you don't want to get lost in the shuffle is like the player's really good. He recruits really well. The team's great, like difficult to beat him regardless. And then if you're an assistant, he's probably, you know, he's always motivated, but he's extremely motivated. Speaking of motivation, though, is there anything particular about how he gets players or coaches motivated? Like, is there anything he does or is everyone just know, like, he's always on, you have to be on? Well, his his best teams, and this is one of the chapters in my book, is that it's called, like, you can't be the only leader. And I remember talking to all these different Alabama players and I asked them, what was the difference between a championship winning team and one that didn't? And outside of that first year at Alabama, 2007, they told me it was never about the talent. Like, pretty much from 2008 on, every single year they have enough talent to win it all. So I said, okay, then then what was the difference? And what they explained to me was that it could be as simple as two to three guys fully buying in and spreading that message throughout the team. And so Saban purposely tries to get kind of his alpha dogs, his top players to buy in. And when he has those guys holding players accountable and calling guys out, I think that message is so much stronger than if it's simply Saban having to do it over and over again, because as we all know, it's, it's a lot easier to tune out one guy than tune out 10 guys. And it's also, it's a lot harder to, when you have your friend right next to you saying, listen, buddy, like you're not getting it done. Like, what are you doing here? Like, that's like, that hurts you a little bit more. We're like, oh man, like if my friend is calling me out. I must really not be doing this. And so when his best teams win it all, I think there's really strong leadership throughout the organization. When they don't, I think sometimes those top players maybe aren't as invested, aren't as willing to hold each other accountable the way that they need to. And one of the things he's always going to be fighting back against, and I think it's it's a key part of his ability to do what he's done, but it's always going to be a challenge, is that he always has to fight back against complacency because they're winning every single year. And that, I think, makes it harder to keep finding ways to get back to the top because at a certain point you think, man, I go to Alabama, like we're going to win a national championship. Like it's going to be great. Maybe we're going to win three. Like it's easy to get caught up and just like, we got this. And not like, once you start thinking that way, that's when somebody knocks you off. And so he's always fighting back against that. And it's always a tough battle for him. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Last but not least, it sounds like you talked to plenty of people, a lot of people about this book to uncover stories and everything like that. Is there any particular story or was there a favorite story of yours that you heard along the process that really stuck with you? There's a couple. I'll give you two quick ones. One of them, which I'm not saying that anybody should do this. I just think it speaks to this guy's level of commitment was that when he was at Toledo, it's his first head coaching job, 89-90. And uh, he calls his running backs coach. It's Christmas morning. And he's like, hey, LC, what are you doing, man? He's like, you know, hanging out with my wife. It's Christmas morning. And uh, he said, you want to come over and watch some film? And he's just like, 
like, no, like I'm like, my wife is going to kill me if I go to your house and watch film. He's like, come on, man. Like, why don't you want to watch film with me? And like, he was dead serious. Like he like, could not believe that this guy didn't want to come over and watch film with him. And so within that, like, I think it's something that he, he's so obsessed with being prepared and it's so important. And, you know, you brought up Belichick earlier. I mean, Belichick is a legendary, like film watching guy. Well, he'll stay up all night watching film and just trying to find every little thing that he can. And that's that tough part of that work-life balance, right? And a lot of these guys are famous for how many hours they stay in the office. And it's something that Saban has had to work on his entire career. But one of the guys I talked to at Alabama said that, especially early on in Alabama, I mean, he's just working so hard. He's got to try to get this program back on top. He said Saban would be in his office and nobody wanted to leave before Saban left. You know, the big boss that you want to make sure that you're working just as hard as that guy. He said, but the way that Saban's office was set up, like he could kind of go out a side door. You didn't realize he left. And so he might leave at nine o'clock and you didn't know he left. And like you kind of walk by his office at 10 and you realize he's gone. You're like, oh man, I just stayed an extra hour when I, when I was done. Like, what am I doing? And so this guy told me he started bribing the custodian. And he said, all right, I will pay you every night to between these two hours, you only clean this one area where Saban has to walk past for him to leave. And then like five minutes after he leaves, you come over and you tell me and then we're all going to leave. And he's like, I took care of that guy every day, which I just thought was hilarious. Like, it doesn't really mean anything, but I just, it just made me laugh. Yeah, that's amazing. It's like, it's so true though. Like, especially in those roles and those opportunities, you're probably trying to make sure he realizes that you're working just as hard. And then you're like, five minutes matters, 10 minutes matters, 15 minutes matters, especially when you're getting home at 10 or 11 o'clock at night anyways, right? But that's amazing. Absolutely. That's great. All right. Do you think, how long do you think saving coaches for? This is the question. This is the billion dollar question. I think it's probably like the day that he retires and in Alabama will, you know, will declare a state of emergency that day. You know, it, it'll be, a, it'll be a wild time. The, the answer that I give to this question without putting a specific year on it is that, especially when you read this book, you will realize what this guy does every single day to be the best. And I think he has so much respect for what it takes every day to be the best. And it, we said earlier, you have to recruit every single day, all these different things. That I think when he gets to a point when he wakes up and he's about to eat his oatmeal cream pies and he's like, you know what, like I just don't really want to go to practice today. Or, you know what, I don't really want to get on that red eye flight to California to start recruiting this kid. Like, I think that's when he'll be like, "Uh oh, like maybe it's time for me to walk away because he's not the guy to me that screams. He wants to hang on until the end. I don't think he's a guy that you're going to have to force out. I think he does not want to end when she's you know, finishing five and seven or six and six. Like, I just think he has too much into it at this point that I think he'll, when he starts to sense himself slipping even a little bit, I think that's when he'll really ask himself, like, can I keep doing this? Can I keep delivering what I need to every day? Because, you know, there's one of the books I like, you know, the title, it takes what it takes. Like that's kind of how he lives his life. And so I think when he realizes like, I can't deliver what it takes, then like, I I probably need to walk away and hand on, you know, hand the reins to somebody else. Yeah, I think if he's going five and seven every year, he's done. He'll realize that he's probably not giving it what it takes anymore and quickly, right? Like he's not going to be doing that for four, five, six years. I mean, if he goes 10 and two, he might be like, it might be time for me to leave, you know? I mean, that just doesn't happen there. Yeah. He misses a recruit by, you know, not going to a meeting, whatever it is, then I get your point, right? Like he's after perfection. And if he can't do that any longer, then then he might be done. How old is he? He's got to be getting pretty old, right? He'll turn 71 on Halloween. Wow. Yeah. So he's definitely getting up there. He's got a lot of energy though. Does he work out? Yeah, so he, he does. He works out every day. And what's amazing is that if you see an Alabama practice, like he's like running and moving around the whole time. You know, he's throwing football, he's yeah. running around, he's running from drill to drill. 
And he had to have a hip replacement a couple of years ago. But other than that, I mean, he still moves around super well. I mean, listen, if I'm even close to that at 71, like I'll have done something really good. You know, I'd love to look like that. Well, they were, I saw a video of Pete Carroll going around the other day of him running down the sideline and he's 70 or, or, you know, maybe right above it. But like, I would argue that Nick Saban's in better shape than that. I've seen Nick Saban running around. He doesn't look 70. So he's obviously taking care of himself and working out and all that stuff, which is important too. But okay, last but not least, where can people find the book? It's called The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban. Where should they go check it out? Where can they buy it? Absolutely. Anywhere you buy a book, you can get it. I know people love to buy on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Books a Million, all those places. You'll be able to find it very easily when you look it up. And I'll also do a little drop for my uh, local independent bookstore here, which is great. If you wanted a signed copy of this book, this is a great place to go to. I'm going to sign a bunch and they'll ship them out to you really soon. So it's called Little Professor Bookshop. It's in Birmingham, Alabama. You can go to littleprofessorhomewood.com. You can order it, put a note. I'll personalize it for you, whatever you want. They're great people there, great little business. So if you want to go big business, Amazon, Barnes Noble, they're all take care of you. And if you want a little one, Little Professor will hook you up. Amazing. Again, The Leadership Secrets of Nick Saban, How Alabama's Coach Became the Greatest Ever by John Talty. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, local bookstore in Birmingham. Check it out. John, thank you so much for doing this. This was awesome. And we'll have to do it again. I know you're working on potentially something else in the works later on. So if it is another sports-related book or something like that, we'll do it again. Absolutely. Love to do it. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.